The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Guests joining me today have been attributed to and known for their dedication to alerting the public of negatively impacting effects upon the safety of air travel. Dan Hanley, as a seasoned airline captain with 35 years of service, was discharged from a long and successful career for raising valid concerns over federal aviation violations. He was subsequently discharged and isolated from an industry and career that has been well earned with professionalism and care. Robert McLean, also labelled as a whistleblower, became ostracised from a long and distinguished career following his alert to the plan to remove air marshals from long-distance flights in 2003. The direct implications upon both have raised concerns over survival, not only for themselves but the many casualties who have put safety of the public before their own well-being. Dan Hanley joins me today by telephone from the Middle East and Robert McLean in Southern California, where he lives with his family. Dan Hanley, Robert McLean, welcome to you. Thank you, David, and thank you for having me on the program. Thank you for having me. You are both very welcome. Let's throw ourselves into this. Dan, I wonder if you could please give us a very brief overview of uh, where you are and where you've been in the last couple of years, just to give our listeners a a general overview. Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, I currently serve as a national public spokesperson for uh, safety and uh, airline safety and security advocacy group. It's called the Whistleblowing Airline Employees Association, Uh, actually a large group of employees, not just from the airline industry itself, but from the FAA and the TSA, joined hands here along with Kate Hanai of FlyersRight.org out on the West Coast, and we recognized that there were problems within the industry that needed to be addressed, and some of us were whistleblowers and saw what happened to ourselves, and we wanted to caution other people, and that's pretty much how it all evolved. It's all grassroots. We're all connected via the Internet, email, Facebook, Twitter, and the like, and I've been very busy. I am the public spokesperson, but there are subgroups out there that bring information forth, and we report to the government via various channels. We are joined by, of course, your good friend, Robert McLean. Could you give us some sort of uh, recognition or the parity that you're aware of between Robert's situation and his history and and yours? And, of course, I'm sure that has uh, similarities to many other people. Yes. Actually, when I heard of Bob's case, I contacted Tom Devine, who's the legal director of the Government Accountability Project in Washington, D.C., and explained to him how we were reporting very similar incidents. I was a Boeing 777 captain out of New York flying mainly to London, and it took a full two years before I saw the first federal air marshal on board aircraft. 
And that's one of the many things I was reporting at the time. And when I heard Bob was reporting that they were pulling back on federal air marshals, I recognized that we were joined at the legal hip there, and we contacted one another and have been in contact since. And Robert McLean, welcome to you today. It's it's such a pleasure to have you back on the program again. Obviously, our listeners have already travelled through your history in the first program, but would you kindly remind our listeners of where you are and where you've been and your role in these issues today? Yes, uh, back in uh, the summer of 2003, right after a broadcast from the FBI and several other federal law enforcement agencies that al-Qaeda was planning to hijack jets leaving the United States or coming into the United States two days after the threat was issued and we were given emergency one-on-one briefings about it. Two days later, the TSA had run out of money due to misspending and had had a plan to remove air marshals from all long-distance flights for two months in order to save money on paying for hotel rooms. Well, a group of senators spoke out about it. The plan was reversed and never went into effect. Three years later, they figured out it was me. They retroactively marked my oral disclosure which came in the form of a text message that was issued from TSA headquarters. They retroactively marked that text with an unclassified marking called sensitive security information and therefore sustaining one charge against me, which had me removed. And that was, uh, I'm going four years now being unemployed, and we're going on seven months in which the the judge that has a review over this has yet to issue a decision, and that's where I am today. And the same question to you, Robert, is how did you get to know Dan? Uh, you Clearly, the two of you were working in the same area of operations. How has that relationship between you developed? Oh, well, Dan was one of the pilots that were protesting on how the air marshal program was being run. Dan was, uh, was trying to make disclosures that all of his long-distance non-stop flights, and I believe Dan was flying from the East Coast to Europe at the time, had never had air marshals on them. And his uh, flight attendants were complaining to him that they had no idea on how to handle a, uh, a terrorist incident, yet, uh, let alone a, uh, an unruly passenger. What period are we talking about here? For myself, it started immediately after 9-11. You have to realize I was flying on a Newark a lot to uh, London, and the flight attendants I was flying with had lost some of their dear friends on Pennsylvania with uh, United Flight 93. And we recognized that immediately following 9-11, there was virtually no security on board the airplane. And not only were flight attendants concerned about it, uh, cockpit crews were also uh, some pilots, I don't want to put them on report, but they were actually, until they got the reinforced cockpit door, were stacking suitcases up against the door just as a deterrent uh, based on what they had, uh, had happened on 9-11. 
Yeah, which is really a violation of federal regulations because that's an exit, an emergency exit. But there were a lot of things going on and uh, a lot of people trying to speak out. But uh, down the road a bit, I was warned, uh, don't mess with the TSA, they're nasty. And back to Robert McLean for one minute. Dan there is indicating that he was really cognizant of this from as early as 2001. Uh, what about you, Robert? Uh, when did you be really become aware of the severity of this condition? Was it around the 2003 period or, or, or was it earlier? No, it was pretty much every. Uh, throughout after 9/11, pretty much up until my disclosure, the uh, there was the TSA was uh, we had no idea what their priority was on where to put uh, federal air marshals on which flights. Before I ask the question, gentlemen, about the very definition of whistleblowers, which seems to have a very negative connotation to it, could I ask you, Dan Hanley, what exactly was it that was so severe that you said that would lose you your position? Okay, there were a whole myriad of issues that I was addressing, and it wasn't just me, there were other pilots that I talked to on layovers or down in flight operations. Some of the critical issues that uh, I can't really discuss on the program, but some of the promises made after 9-11 was that they were going to have secondary barrier protection. They were going to have cameras on board the airplane. They were going to have federal air marshals, and none, none of that was happening. And the flight attendant crew was sitting back there. They were sitting ducks. So the, the thing, and we, we even went to taser training up in the cockpit. Uh, I had to go up to JFK and attend that. So there was a lot of promises being made but nothing being done, and I, as a captain, sitting in the left seat, you have a responsibility to passage and, and crew, and I was also getting feedback from passengers who were expressing concern, and I was following the chain of command. I was in the military before. I talked to my chief pilot. I talked to our union leaders. I started writing letters, making phone calls, and nothing was happening. So when I stepped over the line was when we got in bankruptcy because the pressure, financial pressure is being exerted there, and what happened subsequent to that would tell the whole story. It's really on our website, but it would tell the whole story of how they were limited in their ability to defend me. Can I ask both of you, with your SOPs, your standard operating procedures, whether at this stage the two of you would have been in touch, would have been talking? Robert, when you walked on board, would it be natural for you to talk to the captain or for you, uh, Dan Hanley, would you be talking to an individual like Robert, knowing who they were, aware of each other's role? Yeah, it's absolutely important for the lead air marshal to be in uh, communication with the with the pilot in command or the captain. We always, uh, it was one thing we always uh, we would have even the the captain protest to us about all of the problems and the security problems and Dan really nailed it when he's talking about the secondary barrier system they have been screaming and yelling for these really cheap secondary barrier systems to protect the flight deck from a breach from an unruly passenger or a terrorist. And to this day, only a fraction of aircraft that fly have these secondary barriers. What is the definition of that second barrier? It's a very inexpensive contraption that essentially every time the pilot or one of the pilots needs to use the lavatory or get food and drink, 
they need to open up that flight deck mid-flight. So it doesn't matter how many locks you put on it, how much uh, bulletproof armor you can put on that door, if it's open mid-flight, that flight deck is subject to an attack. And what this, uh, this extremely cheap barrier system essentially a series of cables that are stretched across the front area of the aircraft so that when the when the pilot opens the door nobody can get past this barrier um, and, and so there is no threat and if there is a threat with the barrier there it gives the pilot long enough time to get back into the flight deck. So I'm assuming from that gentleman that system never really worked effectively I remember being on secretly, I can actually tell you that I was a pilot myself for for some time in my many varied careers, and I remember the post-9-11 period where there was absolute paranoia, and I can remember traveling, being one of the first to travel back from Heathrow to uh, Los Angeles in the October of 2001. The paranoia was unbelievable. Is that what we were all suffering from? Is that what uh, professionals like yourselves were suffering from then? Um, trying to figure out how this was going to work, trying to figure out where the next attack was going to come from? Well, that's exactly <laughs> what I was trying to do because there were a lot of uh, pilots and flight attendants that saw holes in the system and problems that weren't being addressed. Some of them were fixable. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, going back real quick, uh, I, we did get, once I did finally get federal air marshals on board out of JFK, I got to know these guys, and we would talk, and one day, one of them, the lead, came up and said to me, hey, Dan, look at this list. We just had this briefing. These are 50 known disguised devices that can evade TSA screening. Uh, we just got a briefing, and I said, well, don't you think that after the Richard Reed shoe bomber incident, because the flight attendants are all back there, that they should be looking for these things? And they, got, they said, no, 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 we're not allowed to divulge this. Well, I went in the flight office and said, look, we were promised cameras in the back of the airplane. The, the flight attendants are my eyes and ears back there, okay? And that came up in the Northwest 253 on uh, Christmas Day. What was the general relationship between you, Robert, and you, Dan Hanley, uh, with the flight attendants? Given that most of them are women, were they very nervous back in those uh, two or three years directly after uh, September the 11th? Were they very difficult to work with for you, gentlemen, just because they were just so terrified at what could happen? Speaking for air marshals and flight attendants, were, they were nervous, but they were very capable and I found them to be a great ally on the war in terrorism. They, uh, they were nothing but uh, a great help to, uh, to air marshals. So uh, I never had a complaint with them. Obviously, you have a couple, a few that stand out. But no, the flight attendants were always a great tool uh, for air marshals in, in getting the job done. And for you, Dan Hanley, your perspective uh, as the captain <coughs> of, the, of the flight? I flew the third flight out of Newark to London after 9-11, and we didn't get any direction from management, so I went down that day and subsequently and would brief meet with the flight attendants, which I normally did anyhow, and give them a brief. And yes, they were some, there was tears down there that, that day because they'd lost friends, and I assured them every flight 
that if they, anything that they saw in the back that they weren't sure of, if we were at the gate, I wasn't leaving. If we got away from the gate, I was going to uh, come back to the gate, and we got airborne, I'd land at the nearest suitable field. So all we could really do, because we all saw that they were sitting back there like that, was offer them the assurance that we were going to trust in their word because they were our eyes and ears back there, and we were going to do take the safest course of action. Uh, like I say, there were some flight attendants that had lost close friends, on 93, and there were a few that were upset, but overall, uh, they're professionals, and they had a job to do back there, and we all worked together as a team, the TSA people, when they finally got there, and the flight attendants, and uh, it was all of us just doing what we needed to do to get the job done, but doing it safely. Um, I had one incident at the gate, and that's the other reason I got bumped off the line, because I had an incident at the gate at... uh, uh, over in London, but it's a lengthy story. I'll save that for another time, perhaps. I'm actually sitting here wondering, as much as I was shocked by Robert McLean's uh, situation, because it, it, it appears to me that you were very much guinea pigs back in those days, and being the people on the front line who were attempting to find some sort of organization paradigm in, in how to not only deal with the after effects of September the 11th, but also how to deal in social reaction, being able to work with each other and get over this paranoia. I'm guessing what is shocking me in your case, uh, Dan Hanley, is that you were a 35-year veteran as a captain. And yet you pointed something out and it was enough for the authorities to say, you know, sorry, uh, you can't go down that road. And you've just been you've just had your long distinguished career taken away from you. Now, was this obviously this wasn't these were not isolated cases for you, gentlemen, but others who had this occur as well and affected their lives. Have you all shared stories? Are there similarities uh, between the cases and individuals that actually took this action upon you? Um, Yeah, the problem with whistleblowing and Bob's heard this before, uh, is the chilling impact it has on other employees. Okay, you believe you have laws and regulations to protect you, but more importantly, institutions of governmental support, and you step out there and you suffer recriminations such as I did, and it sends a chilling signal to everyone else in the industry that knows what happened to you. And that's totally unsatisfactory in aviation. That guy sitting in the left seat should be in a bubble and his operation should be unimpeded by any external financial, legal, or political pressures being exerted. But that wasn't the case after 9-11 with the air carriers and bankruptcy, threatening liquidation. During this time, though, were there a lot of other captains, individuals of your status for both you, Robert McLean, and, and yourself, Dan Hanley, that suffered the same result that spoke up and finished up in this dilemma? If there are, I'd like to meet him and talk with him, but I, no, I haven't. I, I was told, keep your head down. You're not going to get away with what you're doing. I, I have witnesses that would, will attest to that fact. It, it's a very long story, but yes, I, w- I was warned that if I persisted, I even was going to write the CEO of United Airlines, Glenn Tilton, when my, I was trying to keep it internal in the company. I didn't want it out in the media or anyone else because we were in bankruptcy. And when I tried to follow the normal communications channels that were in effect prior to 9-11, such as a captain's report that stayed strictly internal, I was told by junior managers that the United Management thought I was a big mouth, loose cannon, whistleblowing, wanted me to keep quiet. And I, I said no. And when I brought the FAA in, I took the next step up. It's called a flight safety awareness report. And it involves the company, the FAA, and the union. 
I was immediately yanked off the line. Sorry, Robert McLean, you were going to make a response to that point? Uh, well, I just got breaking news from the Associated Press. Scott Block has just been indicted for criminal charges of withholding information from Congress. Scott Block was President Bush's senior official that headed the federal agency responsible for protecting the rights of federal workers and whistleblowers, uh, which was the U.S. Office of Special Counsel. So that goes to show you what uh, we, we nobody had protections. There's nobody to blow the whistle to. The only the only avenue people take is going to the media, because people like Scott Block are busy breaking the law and ignoring whistleblowers. So it's amazing we're having this interview right now because this is just breaking from the Associated Press. Dan Hanley, may I ask, whistleblower? Um, I'm sitting in a broadcasting studio here, and we have the uh, the official poster on the wall about whistleblowers. Is there not something, a, a real negative connotation in this whole concept? Very much so. I was out and uh, talking in a social setting, and I mentioned the word, and I had a woman say, oh, you're a think. <laughs> and I said, well, that's a rather harsh term. I was trying to protect the public interest on board airplane. Yes, it does have a very negative connotation. Yeah, you're branded a rat. You're branded a rat, Robert. Absolutely. That's, uh, there's no such thing as a whistleblower to, to senior executive managers who believe that they're above the law or can get away with their mismanagement. And they believe that you speak out and if you speak out against them and expose them, you are branded a rat or a traitor, which is what they did. They tried to brand Dan as a, as a crazy man, but with me, they tried to brand me as a traitor for releasing information that they classified, they marked because it's not classified information as sensitive information. So that's what they try to brand you to discredit you. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't like the, the term whistleblower because it's sort of they have made it synonymous with being a rat. Uh, for both of you gentlemen, when you took this, this action, because you were clearly very concerned about the conditions on board, who else would step up? and be by your side or were people reluctant to do that especially in your case dan as a captain did you feel during the time that you were given an, uh, enough support to really provide you with a good feel factor to what you had said and done as one of the biggest disappointments in that people that i pilots that i knew for many years and believed in the system believed in the union i was a real strong union man uh, it's happened for the last several years. Uh, it's so disappointing when you're abandoned or betrayed or backstabbed by people that you thought you could trust. And the problem with whistleblowing is after you've already stepped out there, it's too late. <clears throat> then you find out, you look around over your shoulder, and the people you thought were going to be there that were privately talking to you on the phone or face-to-face -face aren't there. And that was the case with me. I thought in the 11th hour... The people that promised me the support would be there. And I was placed on involuntary sick list without even seeing a, me a medical professional. And I was going to run out of a uh, sick list. And I was told that the proper thing to do to protect my license to ensure my pay was coming in was to submit to the employee assistance program, which is normally for 
um, people having either medical problems, family problems, financial problems, and uh, it was causing a lot of disruption. And in your case, Robert McLean, I know that we talked about this in the first program. You did form this association, and I think that you had much success in it. I'm not sure that you had exactly the same story there. I think that you did have support. How would you respond to Dan's position there? Yes, I had uh, five very prominent United States senators that uh, spoke out and supported my disclosure in July 2003. Yet, of course, they were all the the minority party at the time. So uh, they were the ones that did speak out. And I was also backed up by the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association and several other good government groups. Uh, but to this day, regardless of those prominent senators, I'm still jobless and uh, blackballed from uh, ever serving in law enforcement again. Can I ask you, Dan Hanley, about the TSA from your perspective, the reason that it was established after the events of uh, 2001? What do you feel are the failures of that organization at this stage, especially given the breaking news that Robert McLean has just provided us with? <clears throat> My feelings on the TSA, if you look at immediately where the economy was headed immediately after 9-11. Uh, fuel prices were going through the roof. People were afraid to get uh, on airplanes. Um, the airlines were bleeding to get death financially. So I, I know that the government had to respond immediately just to ensure passengers that they were safe getting on. If you recall, President Bush standing between two fifty seven 757s at O'Hare telling everyone the uh, air, air travel is safe, go to Disney World, spend your money. Well, that is, was not the case at all because nothing really was set up at that time when he gave that. They were just trying to get people to get back on airplanes and get the airline industry. So initially, I viewed the TSA as window dressing. And now in that, what practically is the role that the airline management has in steering the TSA? Do they have a lot of uh, influence over the way that the TSA actually operates? I can only address that from my level, talking with my chief pilot up in New York at the time when I tried to address the issues that we just talked about, and he told me that TSA are really tough to work with. They're really tough. They've got their own agenda. So just at that level, and that's really all the further uh, I heard from anyone within the company. Uh, no, and we were talking the 2003 time frame there when I had that discussion. So um, I don't think that there was that much cooperation with the TSA, but I, I can't say for sure because I didn't talk to senior level managers at United. I'm interested, uh, Robert McLean, uh, going back to this breaking news, perhaps you may want to elaborate on this. It's amazing. Uh, Scott Block was the director of the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, which was, it is, it is our federal government's agency that only answers to the president and to Congress about federal whistleblower disclosures. They even, uh, make, they even accept disclosures on major corporate, corporation, um, uh, mismanagement or corruption. And Scott Block was under investigation by the FBI 
and the Office of Personnel Management, um, Office of Inspector General, for criminal conduct, what he was doing, he was having his computers given seven-level swipes, his government computers, while he was under investigation, and he was forcibly removed from his office as director of the OSC, and that agency to this day is still leaderless. And today, the Associated Press announces that he has been charged with, quote, criminal contempt of Congress, unquote. May I ask you there, for the sake of our listeners, was he overseeing, in effect, an internal investigative body? Absolutely. Arguably one of the most important oversight agencies that was created right after the Watergate era. The U.S. Office of Special Counsel was put in place so that people would have an avenue to go to and to blow the whistle on senior executives. For instance, the, um, uh, the deep throat whistleblower, he had nobody to go to but the media. So that's why they created the U.S. Office of Special Counsel. And you could see that the office has almost been, has been, uh, has been used against whistleblowers to retaliate against them. So I'm assuming at this stage that for anybody involved in a whistleblowing case now, today, will not actually have an establishment or a group or an organization like that to go to, given the ramifications of this breaking report? It's extremely important uh, because people are, are yet more afraid. If they believe a, a criminal can head the most important oversight agency, that is supposed that's supposed to protect whistleblowers, and we're talking about whistleblowers within the FBI, the CIA, the NSA. All of the most important agencies are supposed to go to the Office of Special Counsel for protection. So the effect is chilling, and to this day, it's going on almost two years. This agency is still leader uh, leaderless. May I ask either of you gentlemen to respond? to the ramifications of this breaking news now. What is that well, going to do for well, either for pilots, of I'm sorry. <clears throat> for pilots, I need to draw a distinction between Bob and FAA and the other federal employees. Pilots are federally licensed employees, and they have a federal medical certificate, but we don't even follow that whole process through the Merit System Protection Board up to the Office of Special Counsel. We have to go through the Department of Transportation because that's who issues our license. And you need both of those certificates to operate it in the left or either seat of an airplane. If you lose your medical, then you may, you don't have the air, uh, air transport rating. And that, that's how they removed me from schedule. And it is also how they used, removed uh, NSA whistleblower Russell Tice, who uh, you can Google him and see what, uh, what he's all about, is they forced him to go to an NSA-appointed psychiatrist who, I'll, I'll say what they said because he said it on Rachel Maddow, they said he was bipolar, they pulled his security clearance, and he's out on the street after a strolling career of 25 or 30 years at NSA. So, yeah, they, that, uh, pilots are a different breed, and we don't go that route. And I might mention that just last week, the Department of Transportation Inspector General uh, just basically stonewalled my case that has been they've been sitting on forever. They lost my first report. I submitted another one with an affidavit that I had filed with Congress when the Colgan Air 3407 hearing last June, and they just came out and said, 
on a technicality, which is ludicrous, that, that I should contact the Department of Labor. Uh, well, I'm not stopping there. So, yeah, we're, we're not involved. I knew all about uh, Block at OSC, and that was the bottleneck. The buck stopped with him, and nothing could get through. What does this suggest now for your next steps and for the next step of anybody in a similar situation to either of you gentlemen? If there is a corrupt situation that high up in the chain of command, what are the implications on everything else here in this whole um, well, can I address that, Bob? Uh, President Obama campaigned on a promise of a greater openness of government and enhanced federal protection for whistleblowers. And there's legislation in Congress right now. It's a Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. Uh, the House has passed Bill 1507, which includes jury trials, which would enable a discovery phase. Uh, right now, the Senate is, there is people, there are senators that are opposing jury trials. The problem is this whole Merit System Protection Board, if you make it, even make it to the appellate level with it, there's a 2% probability of success. That, that's the statistic on, on, on federal whistleblowers. Now, who in the right mind, Bob has always said, I'd rather go to Vegas and play the 100 grand I lost. I stand better odds of winning my case. You know, besides what happened to uh, Robert and I, who would want to go out there with 2% probability and looking at the other casualties out there that spoke out? So what we're looking at as whistleblowers, and there's a lot of us out here, is what's going to happen with this legislation. That, that is a big thing. And this, with, uh, with Block getting indicted, that's a good move in the right direction. But, again, we need the promises kept that President Obama made in 2008 that he's going to open it up for whistleblowers, and that still remains to be seen. I don't want to say the jury's out, no pun intended, but that's what is needed. Can I ask you, Robert McLean, we have talked about this on the phone prior to the program, there are certain Congress people that have been supportive of this, certain of them supportive at the beginning, uh, but fading out. Who would you say is uh, most proactive in this at the moment? I believe uh, I have to say that Senator Daniel Akaka from Hawaii, and Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa, and on the that's from the Senate, and on the House side, the 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 uh, the, the biggest advocate for whistleblowers would have to be Bill Pascrell from New Jersey, Ed Towns from uh, from New York. Those are the people that right now are pushing. Um, very hard to get this uh, legislation passed. But unfortunately, there always happens to be a senator who puts a secret hold on the bill. Can you define that? When you say secret hold, what, is it, what are you implying there? Uh, essentially, what it does is they want to pass this bill unanimously so that uh, th there's, there's no questions about its uh, credibility. And what happens is, is the senators, they can put a hold on it, and what it does, it pretty much, it, 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 it delays the bill, and it's, and that's what's happening right now. This bill was introduced last January, so we're almost coming to the end of the, the session of Congress ending. So the danger is, with these holds that delay the bill's passage, could expire before the session of Congress uh, uh, closes, 
and the bill uh, ends up being uh, going into the trash can. What is that indicative of, that reticence of somebody or a group of people trying to slow the bill down? What is, what is that exactly suggesting? Uh, the well, antithesis of a greater openness of government. They don't want us out there because of the powers that are exert control over members of Congress. And there I'm talking about Wall Street and the K Street lobbyists that come over with the legislation already written. Uh, there's some people out there that are making a lot of money and uh, they like to maintain the status quo and the last thing they need are honest whistleblowers exposing corruption in the system and so they don't want us to have jury trials they don't want us to have a discovery phase because these administrative law judges when you go through this have great discretion of throwing out i could give you examples of this of throwing out witnesses and evidence there's a Continental co-pilot down in uh, Houston. He just lost with the NTSB and his key witness. And when he was down in Houston, <clears throat> the judge wouldn't even let him on the stand, and he was a precedent-setting case. So, yeah, they, they would like to keep maintain the status quo here because there would be too much exposed otherwise. So You're talking about a lack of transparency here, but are you also talking essentially about a protectionism? Of course. I'm using that in a very deep context, by the way. I'm not just throwing it out there, but it seems to be opposed to the American way of life, the American tradition that the Founding Fathers formed this country for. Well, I can't remember the name of the series, but Frontline ran a series a few weeks, uh, maybe it was last month, okay? And it really is wag the dog. There's two major lobbies in Washington, D.C. One is your transport association, which represents your major carriers, and then the other is a regional uh, airlines Association, and they exert such tremendous force there. Uh, in, in, in Congress, you might be a one-term senator or congressman if you would go up against them. So it, it's not just unique to the airline industry. I mean, that is what's happening, and President Obama alluded to that back when he said he was going to bring everybody to the table during his campaign because the pressure has been exerted. You look at Wall Street and what's happening. So... Um, yeah, it's on follow the money. Can I ask you, Robert McLean, what are the risks now to the general public who are taking both national and long-haul flights, do you believe, given the, the situation that we have today? Uh, the number one most, what disturbs me the most, are in-flight uh, improvised explosive devices. Hands down, it is the, mo is the biggest threat to aviation to this day. And are you aware of the situation with the TSA? Do you still talk to individuals who are still working in those positions that could certainly provide visibility and support that theory that it's still no safer today than it was maybe four or five years ago? It's somewhat safer, but the money that's being invested into the TSA and all of the equipment and uh, personnel hiring it's not done much of a dent into preventing uh, IEDs from getting on the plane. The, the TSA, the federal government, needs to get more intel, uh, human intelligence sources on the ground to prevent this. But right now, what we have now is just uh, a lot of reactionary employees, such as air marshals sitting on the plane waiting for an IED to be found or for a screener to find it in somebody's bag, but we have to get those IEDs from even coming near the airport 
so that they don't get onto the planes. And right now, that's uh, that's definitely uh, it's not happening yet. Yeah, and can I ask you, Dan Hanley, as a uh, former captain, what would your response be to that very question? Well, I, I believe uh, ABC News broke this story on with the statistic that I think there's some like twenty seven thousand flights a day, and there's only only thirty two hundred air marshals. You look at what happened over in Amsterdam with the Northwest two fifty three on Christmas Day. Uh, he managed to get by to get on that airplane. Could I just interrupt there and just, uh, that seems to be a dreadfully poor ratio of flights versus air marshals available. What is? I mean, it demonstrates where we really are and why Bob's uh, uh, point is very valid. Because um, you look at the fact that was a foreign flight and... Uh, Foreign countries don't have the same transportation security administration as we have. There is another uh, weakness in the system. So I don't know. I don't have any definitive answers for what what the solution here is. But when I read that statistic myself, I was startled because it pretty much told the story that uh, either they beef up the number of federal air marshals or do what Bob said and uh, beef up security on the ground. I think what I'm trying to do here is just find the true picture. Uh, Robert McLean, you're an ex-air marshal. What would these uh, figures suggest to you that would be of concern to the general public at the moment flying on these uh, domestic and long, long-haul flights? Uh, I am a huge advocate of getting uh, feet on the ground and gathering intelligence, conducting investigations. I believe I believe there is a need to have air marshals physically on board aircraft, but I believe air marshals, instead of willy-nilly deploying them on on all of these flights, I believe a team of air marshals on the ground conducting investigations, conducting intelligence, and working cases on the ground can arguably protect hundreds of aircraft at one time with a, uh, instead of one team sitting on one plane and just waiting for something to happen. Now, is the TSA adequately funded to provide that level of personnel both on the ground and in the air currently? Yes, I, I think they are, but I believe the funding is being mis, misdirected in a lot of programs that are, that are not effectively protecting aircraft. I think it's just a matter of reprioritizing uh, where the money goes. And I believe this administration has done some huge steps forward after the underwear bomber incident failed. I think that was a wake-up call for everybody that uh, there needs to be more more uh, focus on intel and investigations and not just having people sit around and react to incidents. It appears to me that both of you gentlemen have made a great sacrifice and gone through, uh, no doubt, a lot of pain with this and continue to do so. Uh, for you, Dan Hanley, what is it that you want to achieve now going forward in helping others and helping yourself to be forgiven, as it were, for these situations, to be given a, a second chance and to receive some sort of compensation, if only to get your job back? Oh, I, I'm, I'm finished. My, my flying career is finished, and I'm working with a large group of other whistleblower organizations nationwide. I say I, we are, and we're all exchanging information. What I would, per, what I'm personally attempting to do with others is to expose this process of pressure being exerted on 
10 other uh, airline crew members uh, to prevent what happened. I'm working with a group called Medical Whistleblowers. It's a global organization, 600, mental, uh, 600 health professionals. And this is just isn't something unique to the airline industry where they use a process such as they use with me and Russell Tice. Uh, and that's part of what we're trying to expose, plus the stonewalling at every level and branch of government all the way up to the White House, in my case, and some others out here. So we, we want the enhanced whistleblower protection legislation, but I also would like to see exposure of what happened so it never happens again. As far as compensating me for my losses, I'm not going to get into my personal life there, but there's no compensation for what happened to me. And uh, Robert McLean, the same question to you. Yeah, I don't want the taxpayers to make me rich from this. I don't want to sue anybody. I just want to be put back to work so that I can do what I swore to do when I was 18 years old, and that's to uh, to protect the public in this country from uh, all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's all I want to do. Uh, I don't need to be rich and compensated from this. I just want to go back to work and put bad guys behind bars and protect the weak from the predators. And that's all I want. What can the public do for you, gentlemen, at this stage? I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening to this program. What is it that you would like them to consider in gaining more visibility of your circumstances and the circumstances of those men and women who uh, simply have served their country? It's simple. Uh, phone calls, phone calls, phone calls, phone calls. Call those 202 numbers. Call your senator's offices. Call your congressman's office. Don't email them. Your email just goes into a stack. Don't fax them because it just goes into, into an electronic database and gets gone forever. You need to hit their phone lines with your voice. You need to tie up the receptionist, the operators on the phone. That is what gets their attention because I've been in these Senate staffers' offices. They have... I've been inside where all they have nothing but phone operators fielding calls, and it eats up their resources, it's, it eats up time, and it, and it plugs up their phone lines. You need to call the switchboard in Washington, D.C., not your local offices. Call those area code 202 numbers and make your senator's office a nightmare with your phone calls. And for you, Dan Hanley, uh, what would you say to the general public listening in here? Well, our organization, I've done everything, and as have a lot of people that Bob just mentioned, and I don't want to say that I've lost faith in uh, inside the Beltway, D.C. Uh, I'm disappointed with the mainstream media uh, news producers at ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, and CNN all are aware of my personal story and our organization. Bob's had a lot of national media coverage. Every time I turn on the TV, I see him. As far as his case, um, I, I'm, I'm very pleased with the support I'm getting at the grassroots level, and I wish there was more of it out there. Can I mention my website? And uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm getting a lot of uh, we're, we're using virtual world out there to get our message out, and it appears to be working. Now, our website, we have a contact us page there. The website address is www.airline-whistleblowers, and that's plural.org. And uh, if anyone has any information they, or they want to support us in some way, they could just go to the contact us page. Uh, we guarantee anonymity there because some people are fearful of speaking out. 
Uh, so there's a lot of crosstalk going on at the grassroots level uh, that people don't see. And we'd love to see more of that, not just in the airline industry, but in this country. And people get up and speak out and not be afraid of suffering the recriminations. And if your captain sit in the left seat and you turn a blind eye towards safety, get the hell out of the seat because you shouldn't be there. Passengers expect and demand more of you than that. So um, there's a lot of economic pressures out there right now. For both of you gentlemen, it sounds as if you're becoming stern, uh, strong advocates for uh, all of those in similar situations and that that may be what your life force is now to push forward and to help others to, to regain their dignity as you are with yourselves in affecting change. Yes, there's a lot of mutual support out there amongst all whistleblowers. Uh, and we can relate to one another's situation and exchange information as far as what worked for what didn't. It's pretty amazing uh, who I've actually been put in contact with or who's, or who's come to me just because I'm a spokesperson and the organization begins with whistleblowing. So they're out there, and we're waiting for a greater openness of government with the system uh, in place that people can be more comfortable coming forth with better than a 2% success rate. And that's the only way we're going to open it up. Yeah, uh, or is for people to, to speak understand up. this. The general public needs to ask itself this one simple question: Do you want your government to police itself? And do they believe their government is 100% competent to have nobody police them? And the only way your government's going to be watchdog and 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 any oversight is going to be by inside inside the agency employees who are in the trenches, who are in the cubicles, who have their hands on the corruption and fraud. So you have to ask yourself, are you, we, are you going to protect whistleblowers to protect national security for fraud? In the final two minutes, we've heard an amazing life journey uh, from both of you gentlemen. I'd like to start with you, Robert McLean. Can you tell me your, your greatest memories of your work in service over the years and something that you would like to enlighten our listeners with to show how much you enjoyed the job that you were so dedicated to? It was with the fellow officers that I served with. I uh, My time in the military, in the trenches, and in the in the zones of where we were serving our country those are really the best people and it's really nice to see good people be promoted as supervisors and managers i was uh, on the border combating uh, illegal immigration and illegal narcotics trafficking you have some of the best people out there we've got some of the best people in, as air marshals who are in the TSA that want to protect people. And that is that was by far the one thing that made me happy were the people that I worked with and served with. And Dan Hanley, for you, uh, looking back on your career in a, a job that you clearly adored as being a pilot, uh, flying planes and serving the no. public, what would <clears throat> be your, your greatest Un- memories? Unequivocally, uh, naval aviation. I was an officer, naval aviator back in the 70s, and the camaraderie, the esprit de corps, the leadership coming from your commanding officers, uh, working with the crew where you all work together, that that was there in the airline industry because you work with the captain crew and the maintenance people. But the airlines being a commercial enterprise and the Navy not having a bottom line to worry about, 
that makes a day and night difference. Okay, the missions we did in the military through the P3 were very interesting and exciting. And uh, then I got on with the airlines, and uh, you get into all the labor strife and everything that goes with it. Unfortunately, I was hired by United in 1978, the year the Deregulation Act was passed, and that changed the whole complexion of the industry. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely be when I was back a naval aviator. In the last 30 seconds, for you, Robert McLean, uh, what would be your statement to the general public having listened to this program? Uh, it goes back to, once again, the people need to ask themselves, who do they want the federal government to, who do they want to oversee the federal government? Do they want to still rely on Congress? Do they still want to rely on their inspectors general that they appoint themselves? Or do you want the whistleblowers from the cubicles, from the trenches and the front lines uh, blowing the whistle on corruption and uh, illegal, illegal actions? because uh, whistleblowers are the ones that always, always uh, uh, expose this, and it's nobody else. And what is your final uh, statement, Dan, to the general public about uh, the situation of so many that are suffering the issues that you have today? If you know a whistleblower out there, support him. And if you know, see something wrong, no matter what, the only way we're going to turn the country around is for everybody to stand up and speak up and demand the laws be changed that protect us, that want to speak out. So I appreciate all those out there that did have supported me and Bob and the other people, and ask for everybody to support whistleblowers because it's a very lonely place to be. Dan Hanley and uh, Robert McLean, it's been a great pleasure today to talk to both of you. I know that, uh, Dan, you are in faraway lands, uh, Robert McLean in California. I do uh, wish you both so well and look forward to talking to you again on this program, and all of us at In Discussion uh, will be following you avidly to a successful conclusion. Thank, Thank you. you very much for having me, David. I very much enjoyed it and appreciate it. Uh, to our listeners, uh, I do hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series by visiting davidgibbons.org. If you have anything that you would like to send to either Robert McLean or Dan Hanley, uh, just uh, visit the website and they will receive your message via our staff. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. <music> David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.